This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Schlomowitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. In November 2021, string player, composer, and improviser Andrew McIntosh released an album called A Moonbeam is Just a Filtered Sunbeam on the British label Another Timbre. In this episode, Andrew unfolds how he created this deeply atmospheric and lyrical record. I'm Andrew McIntosh, and I'm a composer, violinist, violist, and Baroque violinist living in Los Angeles. And I teach uh, all of those things at the California Institute of the Arts. What we just heard was uh, a fragment from A Moonbeam is Just a Filtered Sunbeam, which is a hour-long fixed-media piece that I composed in 2020, which was released last year um, on the British record label Another Tamper. Most of my career has been um, as a performer or as a composer writing primarily acoustic music for other musicians to play. Um, and it's a very uh, score-based practice for me for the most part. Um, although I do a fair amount of improvisation as well as a performer. And it's been a, a curiosity in the back of my mind for years, um, wondering what would happen if I created music out of recorded material instead of out of material intended to be performed. Um, I love recordings. Uh, perhaps even more than concerts. And starting in about 2014, I began collecting some recorded sounds without really a clear vision of what I would do with them. I just knew that I loved these sounds and I wanted to create a little library of recorded sound. And so the beginning of that process was uh, with bowed cymbals. I love the sound of cymbals. And in particular, I have a fascination with the sound of a cymbal when your ear is very close to it. It's a, it's a sound that could never exist in a concert unless you amplify it somehow. But cymbals have quite a bit of bass frequency content that's almost symphonic in its nature. And you can only hear it with your ear right next to the cymbal because even two or three inches away and the sound disappears. So I made a, a library of around 140 samples of some cymbals that I had borrowed from a percussionist friend of mine. And then I used a variety of different bows and techniques to produce these these samples. But the microphone was a quarter inch away from the cymbal, so it, it captured these, these kind of symphonic textures. Just out of curiosity one day, I thought, well, what happens if I take these uh, samples I've made of bowed cymbals and I upload them into AltaVerb software? 
and tell it it's a custom impulse response uh, and trick the computer into thinking that, that it's a reverb. It turns out you can then filter any other sound through the harmonic resonance of a bowed cymbal, which is quite nice, um, depending on the source material. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had quite a few concerts that were canceled and found myself unexpectedly with a bit of time on my hands. And so um, I do a lot of hiking, and I started taking a field recorder along on those hikes. I'm particularly fond of the sound of the wind uh, passing through pine trees. We have many pine forests in California of different kinds. And um, I wanted to see if I could capture that, those different kinds of, of wind sound and the different kinds of pine. And it turns out that wind is the perfect source material for these harmonic filters, because the sound of the wind has nearly infinite frequency content in its spectrum. And it's, um, it's a very complex sound, and we call it noise because it has so much content that our ears can't really process all of the individual components of it. Because of that, it, it ended up filtering very well with the bowed cymbals, and... Um, I could treat it almost like, uh, like say, a bow, so that the wind was its own kind of bow for these digital resonance filters created out of the sound of cymbals. Another element of recorded sound that I was interested in was um, to do several very long takes of, um, of improvisations on violin and viola, which are my primary instruments. And um, so I went into a studio, actually the studio of Louis Pesikov, wonderful recording engineer here in Los Angeles, who also did um, a bunch of analog mixing on this piece and... Um, some of the fi final layers of electronic processing were done by him on his uh, extensive collection of um, vintage analog gear. So I went into the studio and recorded uh, an improvisation. I think it was around 45 minutes or an hour or something like that. And then just layered other improvisations on top of it. Because I had set out originally with the idea of, of having something very, very harmonic, um, it lent itself to kind of a drone-based texture for the most part. Um, but at the end of the session, um, I'm not sure exactly why, but I started playing something that was quite rhythmic. Um, and just, uh, yeah, just following that, that line for a while. That's maybe eight, eight minutes or so of, of rather short little notes. Um, and so when I went to record the second line over the top of, of that for improvisation number two, I kind of knew that um, 
once I got to around 40 minutes in of these drone-based textures, at a certain point, it was going to become very light and very rhythmic again. And so I, I uh, thought, well, what happens if I turn that into a kind of waltz? What I guess what came out is something uh, rather dirty, <laughs> rhythmically. It's quite rhythmic compared to the rest of the piece, but it's not very regular. Uh, it wobbles in tempo quite a bit. Um, and then I added a third layer to it as well. Um, and I was just enjoying, yeah, letting letting the rhythms feel a little dancey, but also perhaps scattered and, and, and splatter, um, and not attempting to be precise with it. It's not on a click track or anything. This is one of the things I love about improvisation, is that you can invite these rhythmic textures into a sound that feel very intuitive and very organic, um, but they would be nearly impossible to notate or to recreate or to ask someone else to produce, say, in a score, in, unless you come up with some sort of alternative notation that also invites an intuitive rhythmic language that's not fully notated.
I do quite a lot of just intonation repertoire uh, as a performer and also studied composition with Mark Sabat and Wolfgang von Schweinitz, who began the Plain Sound Collective and uh, Helmholtz notation system for just intonation, which is very useful and seems to be uh, expanding in its reach every year. So this has been a large part of my life, but, uh, but just intonation music and as a overgeneralization here tends to be pretty thoroughly composed. It's a very detailed way of working with harmony. And I've wondered for a while what would happen if you attempted to improvise in that world instead of planning everything in advance. And so I had I came up with a little bit of a system with which I wanted to to map out some basic harmonies on the open strings and harmonics of the instrument and then just improvised within that. And I again I didn't necessarily have a plan other than adding to this library of recorded sound that I might eventually someday make something out of. And then later, uh, actually at the beginning of the pandemic, around the same time I was making the field recordings, I also went up to my office at CalArts, where there's a lovely uh, seven-foot Bosendorfer, and recorded more improvisations, actually many, many hours of improvisations of piano harmonics and bowed piano. I love the sound of bowed piano. It's a kind of a wild, unruly, unpredictable sound. And in particular, I was experimenting with putting the um, the bow that I was using very close to the tuning pins and getting a kind of ponticello sound. There's a similar technique to getting ponticello out of a violin or a viola or a cello. You just bow next to the bridge and, and um, the string is very stiff at that point and it has too much resistance to activate the fundamental and so it activates a bunch of high overtones instead and in this case up to 18th 19th partial the problem with that uh is that the piano is in equal temperament and so i had this idea that i you know i was generating these long kind of drone improvisations um but i wanted them to be stitched together harmonically with the violin and viola improvisations and so I thought, well, I, I shifted some of the strings on the instrument by a septimal comma, which is an interval, which a very small interval, which happens to have a, a ratio of 64 to 63. So I thought, what happens if I speed up the recording of the piano samples by the same ratio? And a very uh, happy accident is that then all of the overtones aligned with what I had been improvising with on the on the stringed instruments. In fact, as a as a very technical uh, uh, side note here, when you strike a piano string and let it resonate freely, it's usually fairly inharmonic and the overtones are out of tune. But when you bow a piano string, the friction and of the of the bow against the string creates a stick slip phenomenon called mode locking, which actually forces all of the overtones to be in tune with the fundamental of the string. So the most in tune way that you can play a piano is to bow it. I, I discovered that by accident, just based on the fact that then it aligned perfectly with these microtonal harmonics and the violin that I had recorded months earlier.
pitch being the common thread that connects these various materials um, that were all recorded at different times. The idea of filtering is another thread. First of all, in a very analog sense, uh, on the violin and the viola, I love using mutes. And so when you place a mutes made of different materials um, on the bridge, it's essentially an analog version of an EQ filter. A very soft mute will filter out high-frequency content, and a very hard mute will, will filter out low-frequency content. And so I was using mutes made of rubber, of leather, of wood, and of metal at different times um, to create different sounds out of the instruments. Also, the idea of a harmonic on a string is itself a filter, because um, a vibrating string contains uh, dozens of waveforms passing back along the length of the string. But when you press at a certain point on the string, very lightly, at a, uh, a nodal point, um, you filter out all of the possible waves that don't pass through that point. Say, if, you've, if you touch two-sevenths of the length of the string, then what remains is only seventh partial type sounds that come out of that string, um, because anything else is filtered out. In the final section of the piece, um, which we're listening to now, the wind acts as this, as I mentioned earlier, as a kind of bow filtered through these symbols. But the symbols are not the only things um, that it's being filtered through. The, also, I also created some of these resonance filters out of simply samples of earlier in the piece, just uh, taking the stereo mix of like minute 10 or 11 and taking a, a 10 second chunk and then telling altiverb it's a it's an impulse response and using it as a reverb uh, the whole thing was just a, a line of curiosity and is very technical is very detail oriented but it came to be just by asking questions what what happens if i do this and then you do it and uh, sometimes you know you end up with something that was interesting but but doesn't justify generating a whole piece of music. Um, and sometimes you end up with the really happy accidents that are perhaps a bit of a mystery. In fact, I think that in general, I've, uh, as a composer, when I've been most happy with things I've written, I feel like I have no idea how they work or where they came from. Um, I'm a very detail-oriented person, and so I can talk about the techniques and the methods for how something was made. But the more intuitive level of what makes it work is... Uh, is often just simply a mystery. 